Welcome to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. I'm your host, Timmy G, providing your weekly dose of insight and inspiration for mental and emotional well-being. Are you ready for your weekly brain bath? Let's go. In 2017, CFRC Radio celebrates 95 years of creating campus community radio in Kingston, Ontario. Over the last 95 years, CFRC's governance has evolved. Once supervised by Queen's University and later by Queen's Alma Mater Society, since 2014, CFRC has been an independent, self-governing, not-for-profit organization. Its board of directors has representation from Queen's University, the AMS and SGPS, CFRC Radio Club, and the Kingston community. Learn more about CFRC, Canada's longest-running campus and community radio station at cfrc.ca. AMHS KFLA's vocational services connect employers with skilled workers recovering from mental health challenges. This free program offers individual assessments, job preparation training, and placement. Employers are matched with qualified, reliable workers and receive ongoing support for hires as they lead their lives in positive new directions. For more information, call 613-544-1356 or visit amhs-kfla.ca. Mental health news from around the globe. Welcome to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM. I'm your host, Timmy G. This from the star, NBA makes progress on mental health, but is it ready for Royce White? Royce White has been leading the National Basketball League in Canada, scoring an average of 24.7 points a game. He has 5.7 assists. All of this should be sufficient to get the attention of NBA scouts for a shot at the world's top basketball league, but that hasn't been the case for White, nor has it been that simple, his path over the last few years. He was diagnosed with anxiety as a teenager, five years after a series of bitter disagreements with NBA teams over strategies to manage his condition. The 26-year-old isn't convinced the league will welcome him back, even as its attitude toward mental illness evolves. The NBA announced last week it would hire a director of mental health and wellness, a significant step for a league that previously addressed mental health under its drug policy. And earlier this winter, as I've mentioned on the show, Raptors star DeMar DeRozan has detailed his issues and struggles with depression, and the Cleveland Cavaliers player Kevin Love has described suffering panic attacks. Both men have been praised for their bravery by both fans and the media. White hopes the league's changing stance on mental health will help him secure another tryout this offseason, but he's not sure the NBA community will welcome his activism as warmly as it has the testimonies from both Love and DeRozan. White says it's really special to see the work the mental health community has done, and it's brought the sports world through a bottleneck. Both DeRozan and Love share a common denominator, but I was advocating for a policy. I was voicing my concerns over conflicts of interest and a lack of education. That's much different from the conversation that those other two players have brought forward. After starring at Iowa State, White was drafted 16th overall by the Houston Rockets in 2012, 19 spots ahead of Golden State All-Star Draymond Green. But his relationship with the team soured, after the two sides couldn't agree on a written policy to manage his anxiety. White says the team didn't take his condition seriously 
while the rockets helped advance the narrative that White's fear of flying short-circuited his pro career. After bouncing from the Rockets to the 76ers to the Sacramento Kings, White finally debuted in March 2014. His entire NBA career totals three minutes played, spread over three games. But when the league and its Players Association agreed that the 2017 collective bargaining agreement would mandate a mental health management program, the union credited White's advocacy for helping prompt that decision. The same year White and the Rockets clashed over a management plan to help manage his anxiety, longtime NBA guard Kean Dooling confronted his own mental health crisis after a stranger groped him in a public bathroom. The assault triggered memories of childhood sexual abuse and brought on an episode of post-traumatic stress disorder that Dooling says led to the end of his NBA career. Dooling checked himself into psychiatric hospital and eventually connected with a therapist at Harvard University. But he says in 2013, the NBA didn't provide players with the resources to deal with their mental health issues, whether chronic or acute. Now the NBA PA's player wellness counselor, Dooling says the five years since White's falling out with the Rockets have seen the league and its players shift their attitudes toward mental health starting to be destigmatized because there are champions of the message, said Dooling, while mentioning White, DeRozan, and retired WNBA star Shamik Holdsclaw. The same way we, when we sprain an ankle, we go to the best ankle specialist. When we need surgery, we go to the best surgeons. When our heart and our head isn't there, who do we go to? The issue hit home for Toronto sports fans in February when DeRozan tweeted about struggling with depression. He later told the stars Doug Smith, his on-court confidence often belies a nagging sense of vulnerability. It's one of those things, no matter how indestructible we look, we're all human at the end of the day. We all got feelings, all of that. Sometimes it gets the best of you, or times everything in the whole world is on top of you. Raptors fans responded with unconditional support, creating a message book for DeRozan and starting Project Don't Worry, We Got You crowdfunding page that has raised more than $3,500 for lupus research in DeRozan's honor. As White wraps up his second season in London and targets another NBA gig, he says players like him and DeRozan prove success depends on managing mental illness and not necessarily curing it. He says, I may never actually overcome anxiety in totality, but I may be able to function at a high level while playing basketball. We're not going to concede that I shouldn't be able to play in the NBA because I'm saying the things I'm saying. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web CFRC.ca. Premier Kathleen Wynne is promising $2.1 billion to rebuild Ontario's mental health system over the next four years as her long-governing Liberals face a tough re-election fight. The new funding, which will allow the hiring of hundreds of mental health workers in high schools and tops up the $3.8 billion the province already spends annually on mental health, will go to a system health professionals say is in crisis, with many Ontarians struggling to get help. The announcement comes as Ms. Wynne continues to unveil an election platform heavy on new health care spending. Speaking at Toronto Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, she said the new money for mental health comes after years of calls for the government to do more. She said there's no question that we can do more and we will. Over the next four years, we're going to rebuild the system and open doors to mental health care in communities across Ontario. She said the new funding will allow 12,000 young people to access therapy and counselling by 2019. Every high school in the province will get an additional mental 
mental health worker within two years, requiring about 400 new positions. Psychotherapy for as many as 350,000 people suffering from mild to moderate anxiety or depression will also be publicly funded. Camille Quenville, the head of the Canadian Mental Health Association's Ontario Division, said the new funding is a monumental first step to fixing a mental health and addiction system that has been in crisis for years. While both of Ontario's opposition parties have called on the government to increase mental health spending, they've struggled recently to support Ms. Wynne's move to do exactly that. Before the Premier's announcement, PC MPP Lisa McLeod sent a letter to the Finance Minister asking him to match the official opposition's proposal to increase such spending. In the party's now-defunct platform, the People's Guarantee, Tories said they would spend an additional $1.9 billion on the issue if they were to form government. The document describes their proposal as the largest mental health commitment in Canadian provincial history. The opposition finance critics said the timing of the $2.1 billion announcement only hours later, was suspect. The only thing they care about is re-election. I question their motive. This is the 11th hour, 78 days before an election campaign, and the government presided over a broken system for 15 years and did nothing to fix it until now, says Ms. McLeod, who has been vocal about her own mental health struggles and the government's need to do more. While she could not confirm recently whether her party was still committed to its proposal, Doug Ford, the party's new leader, said he will not abide by the old platform. Ms. McLeod said she has yet to see her new leader's spending document and did not know if it would maintain the promise of new spending on mental health. We'll put forward our plan in the coming days and there will be a platform and we will be able to defend it, she said. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web CFRC.ca. This from the Globe and Mail. How to Bridge the Mental Health Gap at Work, consistent theme that we share on talk. Mental health is estimated to cause a $2.5 trillion drag on the global economy in terms of lost attendance, lost productivity, and less easily defined measurements such as lost creativity. And the panacea often trotted out, especially in discussions on what companies can do to help employees, is resilience. Yet, as experts in the field note, this is a concept that is often misunderstood. It requires a much more communal effort than simply individuals coping and learning resiliency skills on their own. Psychologist Vivian Lee, in a panel discussion on mental health issues about the workplace, said resiliency is the ability to bounce back from stress, but it's a little more complicated than that, and I would like to say what it's not. The panel was part of the Globe and Mail's Human Resources Seminar on Solving Workplace Challenges and its 2018 Employee Recommended Workplace Awards. She went on to say, resiliency doesn't mean you're never affected by things. It doesn't mean you go through the day and you never feel sad, you never feel angry, you never feel stressed. That's not healthy either. You want to feel those natural emotions because they are signs that something is going on. Our bodies are trying to tell us something. Emotions can be felt and acknowledged, but we can learn to use those emotions more constructively. Question, though, is how? How can those dealing with mental illness do this without feeling like they're falling short at work? This was asked by Kendra Fisher, prominent speaker on mental health and founder of the advocacy group Mentally Fit. You feel as though when you go into a job, There's this checklist that you're supposed to be able to fulfill. You know that when there are expectations of you, you're given these expectations when you start and you're taught what the culture is. Ultimately, Fisher says, to be successful, you have to check off all those boxes. For those in that kind of common workplace environment, there is a fear of asking for help, especially with mental illness. But those concessions don't mean I'm not going to fulfill my responsibilities. It means that if you're able to make those concessions for me, 
I'm going to be able to achieve more for you because it creates a safe space, creates a safe environment. Flip side is that some companies may feel that if they give concessions to one employee, say flexible deadlines or the ability to work from home, other employees may demand those things too, she noted. Yet Ed Mantler, vice president of programs and priorities at the Mental Health Commission of Canada, emphasized that no employer is working in a vacuum. He said there are already in place many standards and guidelines for companies to work with. No one is starting from scratch. Every organization already has some of the pieces of the puzzle in place. And it's a matter of looking at those policies holistically, bringing them together, analyzing where they can make improvements and taking incremental affordable steps to keep moving. Assisting employees in improving mental health programs can be seen not as a major daunting task for an organization, but as a matter of adding small extra measures to cover gaps in a company's current policies. Still, in helping to foster resiliency and in asking employees how a company can help them, it's important for employers not to get into a pseudo-diagnosis of a worker, to see them as showing the signs of X condition. Bill Howitt, Chief Research and Development Officer of Workforce Productivity at Morneau Chappelle, said, I think something that happens is that we start to evaluate and start to judge human beings at work. That's where I get concerned. I think employers are wise to focus on the behaviors and stay away from the diagnosis business. There is, however, the concept of a company having the duty to inquire. This means sitting down with an employee if his or her work is suffering and asking about ways to help. Complicating this is the fact that people coping with mental health issues often experience a low, slow progression before they may reach a crisis point. Work may even be the one place they feel safe, a place where tasks are more clearly structured. Dr. Lee says if someone is having mental health issues, most of the time people want to continue working. The more you can provide some kind of accommodations for them in the short term, the more likely they're going to stay at work. Helping colleagues through a tough time, helping them feel more productive and hopefully feel better can potentially benefit others in the office, creating a sense of family. Ms. Fisher took this a step further, arguing that fostering resiliency and providing accommodations for mental illness, just as an employee may make the workplace wheelchair accessible, ultimately comes down to the employer. She says it all comes back to management. The culture of your workplace is built from the top down. We can have whatever relationship we want with our peers in the workplace, but ultimately what's okay and what's acceptable comes from the top. And often that means listening to what employers say they need in order to stay productive despite illness. Management has to give themselves enough credit and enough confidence to know that you guys are going to be able to manage productivity. You are listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. Telephone Aid Line Kingston is a crisis, distress, befriending, and information listening service based in Kingston. Talk is confidential, non-judgmental, and anonymous. We are a safe place to call when you don't know where to turn. To reach our aid line between 7 p.m. and 3 a.m., call 613-544-1771. For volunteering information, please email talkrecruitment at gmail.com. Let's get personal. Our talk feature interview.
I'm pleased today to welcome Paul Yantha. Paul is retired from the military after almost 32 years. He's a husband, a father of two, and he has a unique story as part of our Music as Therapy feature this week. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. So almost 32 years in the military. What inspired you to join the military? I, uh, I was inspired by them coming to the high school that I was at and just putting on a display of how uh, they wanted people to be in good shape, exercise. Um, they had things that would keep you motivated to do these kinds of things. And I loved sports. I loved fitness. I loved working out when I was in high school. wasn't a great athlete, but I uh, thought I was <laughs> and uh, just loved that part of, of life. And so they just drew me in. And um, they had uh, a gymnasium anywhere you'd go they'd give you time to work out they had all these things that they would offer you that would allow you to continue your your exercise and get paid for it wow that was great they also had this thing on the side that they would educate you um that really didn't interest me that much i wasn't i wasn't concerned i was planning on on not going back to school after grade 12 but they convinced me to go on they convinced me to go to university they paid for all that which was great and that led me down the road to being an officer as opposed to being an, uh, an enlisted person. I think looking back, I might have been better as an enlisted person because I loved doing the, the physical labor, the physical fitness stuff, but even applying that in day to day. As an officer, I quickly became uh, responsible for other people because that's what it's about. You, uh, you, you become a manager and, uh, and leading people immediately. That's what you're trained to do. And, and that was okay. That was, that was great. I, um, I fit into that. I did the best I could, but I really, I found it difficult as the years progressed. I found, I found more and more, uh, responsibility, adding more and more stress to my life. Um, because I was a bit of a perfectionist in that I wanted things done correctly. I really believed in being responsible for what I did and, and doing the best job and, and, um, and trying to not uh, not uh, mess up, and when you take on the responsibility of other people, that builds up uh, in a way that um, that becomes more than you can actually handle. Mm. So as my as my career progressed, my rank increased. I uh, got more responsibilities, and as with many organizations, military included, there became a time when, and it's probably still correct today to say that we're expected to do more with less. So we'd be expected to do more work with less resources, less money, less people. So that became a point in my life where, well, something has to give. You you can't give as much effort in all the areas that you'd like to do because you don't have time in the day, you don't have the resources to do all this stuff. And I found that very difficult because I wanted everything to be done to the best of the, my ability. And I took it upon myself to do that. And um, when I got a job in, uh, as, the, as the engineer in, in Comox, um, responsible for 250 people, um, it, was, it was difficult because I had all these people that I was responsible for, all these projects, and I didn't have enough time in the day. I would show up at work seven o'clock in the morning and I'd be there way past everybody else time there. I had a responsibility for my family too. And so I wanted to be home for supper for 5.30 every night because my wife had made supper and I wanted to be there with them. And I, I tried and most times I was able to, but I'd bring work home. I'd have work on the weekends. 
and it built up. I didn't even realize how much it was building up within me and it was not healthy. I didn't have enough healthy outlets to deal with that stress. It didn't manifest itself there, but it was building up to that point. And then my next posting from Comox was to what seems like everybody's dream posting to Florida. Seems great mm. as part of the, the NORAD uh, um, agreement between the United States and Canada looking after the, the, the airspace of, of the skies over North America. Uh, NORAD being Nor uh, North American Airspace Defense Command. There are um, headquarters located in the States and in Canada. Americans working here in Canada, Canadians working down in the United States. I, with a bunch of other Canadians, was working down in, in Tyndall, Florida. It sounded great. I was responsible for the general who is the senior Canadian down there. And I was the executive officer to this general, which sounds like a pretty peachy job to be able to uh, to just look after the needs of, of, of one person. But that's not all it was. Uh, I also had to be the, the administration officer for the entire contingent down there. Um, and so there was a lot of responsibilities because the administration of how things are done there uh, are different than in Canada. And yet there's Canadian rules and regulations that have to be followed. So I was responsible for the Canadians that were down there, that things were following the proper procedures and things. Hmm. I had a clerk that was was in, was doing that directly, um, but she she was going through some issues too. We're all human, and she was uh, had some difficulties that um, made her uh, made it difficult for her to do all the work that she needed to do. And so then the responsibility fell back on me. I also reported to commanding officer in charge of the Canadian contingent, who oversaw my job and other Canadian aspects of the job down there. That was difficult for me because I didn't feel supported. This uh, this gentleman, nothing against him, he had another job as well. And he felt that was more important than the Canadian aspect. He just left the Canadian operation to me. And so quickly when things weren't going quite right in the administration side because my clerk was having difficulties, things were falling through the cracks, the responsibility fell on me. I didn't have the uh, the support from my boss, from this commanding officer. And at the same time, I had a very demanding job trying to keep up with the general. A general officer, it's not by accident that they get to the position they're in. And they have a lot of responsibility, too. They're able to decipher a lot of things, digest a lot of information, meet a lot of people, organize a lot of stuff or do things. And their work days are long, too. I had to keep up with him. Uh, a very demanding uh, officer and do the things that I needed to do s to support him. And then in addition to these Canadian things that had to be done, it was very quickly more than I could could really handle. So even and, in Comox, your stress levels were starting to rise. Yes. And now you're in the States and they're starting to rise even more. They're even more. And I didn't realize, again, I didn't realize how severe it was getting to me. And I was probably bringing that home too. Um, and and uh, again, long hours down in Florida as well, working. And uh, uh, I didn't realize I was I was actually a ticking time bomb. Mm. And then uh, and then one day it manifested itself. Uh, it just so happened it was the day that my wife and kids were heading off to Orlando, which was about a six-hour drive where where we lived. And uh, they were meeting up with a a friend of our daughter's who lived in Goose Bay, Labrador, one of the other locations that we had lived in in, uh, in one of the many postings that we've had over the years. 
anyway, they continued to be friends through Facebook and whatever else. And, and she was planning her first trip to Florida. This girl was, was so excited to come to her first trip into to Florida. And so we wanted to make sure that she was going to have a good time. So my wife and kids were off going to Orlando to have a good time, good vacation, uh, Disneyland and the whole thing. I was left by myself. I had no problem with that. I'd been by myself before, except today was the day. Today was the day that the, uh, that the anyway, it was going to be uh, an interesting um, manifestation of, of this, of my stress. What happened was just uh, in the early evening hours, I started to develop severe, severe uh, chest pains. And so I thought I was having a heart attack. And I was trying to convince myself that it wasn't a heart attack. And so I'd walk around and I was saying, oh, everything's going to be fine. It's going to be like in two minutes, it's going to be subsided. It wasn't. And it continued to the point after maybe 10, 15 minutes, maybe a little bit longer, I started to feel a little bit panicky because I'm alone in a house. I didn't want to die alone. These thoughts start coming into your head. I'm in severe pain. This is getting worse. And so I start to panic and the panic gets worse. I get out of the house. I'm trying to walk this off, trying to see somebody in the street. Can somebody help me? There's nobody around. Finally, after quite a bit of time, I decided to go to the neighbor's house to see if someone's home. So I knock on the neighbor's door and sure enough, the neighbor gentleman that I had, I had met and you know, talked um, in the neighborhood before, he was a nice guy. He, uh, he came out and he saw that I was in distress. I did not look good. I was very ill looking. And so he immediately said, I'll help you. I'll take you to the hospital which was great, great neighborly thing to do. So he took me to the hospital and they checked me over, uh, did all these tests. I didn't have a heart condition uh, or heart problems that they could find. They didn't, weren't able to do all the tests. They calmed me down with some anti-anxiety drugs, sent me back home late that night. My neighbor took me home and, um, and I thought, okay, uh, I was able to sleep because of the, uh, the, the medication. And the next day, I'd have to go to uh, to the medical officers on the base. As per protocol for military, I had to go through the military medical system as well. So I did that. So uh, I went there the next morning. And at this point, the chest pains had subsided. So I thought, okay, you know, things are going to be okay. Um, I was trying to convince myself that. I still didn't feel very good because it had been a long night. I had been in the hospital a long time, and they poked and prodded. And so I wasn't feeling 100% at all, and I was concerned. Again, my job, uh, I had to support my boss this day. How was he going to react to me at being in the hospital and all these things? And hmm. so I went to the hospital on the base and got checked over by a doctor, and they prescribed me some medic anti-anxiety medication. And I went back to the office, told my boss what happened. He had me see this other doctor who's, who, um, who was a senior officer, but he was a special a practitioner who also looked after the needs of the, the general officers who I would had privy to because I was serving the general officer down there. And so he had me see him. I met with this, this doctor and uh, he, he had seen the results of the cardiogram and, uh, and it was fine. So he thought, yeah, you could still have heart problems, but it uh, doesn't look like it. Um, anyway, if you need anything, if you need any, any assistance, I, I can, uh, you know, here's my number. If you ever need to call me, uh, I'll, I can, I can help support you too, how best I can. So I thought I, I kept that in mind. I thought I didn't need to do that. Mm -hmm. Then later that day, again, didn't feel all that great that day. It was a tough day at work. Uh, went home, uh, later that afternoon, evening, and wouldn't you know it on the way back home, the chest pains come back. I thought, oh no, here we go again. 
and they weren't subsiding. So at this point, I did have medication. So I took some anti-anxiety medication. It calmed me down. In fact, I fell asleep because this medication made me very sleepy. Mm-hmm. So I fell asleep for a couple of hours. And now you, you didn't call your wife throughout this right. time. I'm curious, why, why didn't you call your wife? I didn't call her because I didn't want to interfere with the vacation. As I had mentioned, our daughter and her friend, I didn't want to upset them. I didn't want to, to say, you know, come back home, uh, change your plans because of me. I was trying to say, I'm going to be okay. Let them have their fun. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity for this girl. So I didn't want to interfere with that. So that's why. Gotcha. And um, so on my way back home, uh, like I said, I I had the pains and then I fell asleep, woke up. Well, the pains were there. They were, oh no. So this is about eight o'clock at night, maybe seven thirty, eight o'clock. I'm wondering what am I going to do? So I, I don't want to call my wife. I don't want to again, upset her or upset their plans. So then I, I call my sister who lives in Toronto and she tried to calm me down. We spoke for hours. She, she was, she was very good. But around 11 o'clock, the pains were getting worse. I thought I, I need to do something. I, I need, I can't take more of this medication yet, the anti-anxiety medi- medication, but I think I'm having a heart attack. I really, I really do. I, I, I didn't believe the results that I'd heard earlier in the day that my heart was fine. And th- this is the part in the story where things go from bad to, to mm-hmm. not only worse, but nightmarish. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't realize that I'm just trying to, I'm trying to figure out what I need to do to, to get help and not die here. Like it was a very difficult position I was in. I was alone and I didn't want to interfere with my wife. So I'm calling, I'm talking with my sister. She's trying to calm me down. Um, but it's not helping. And so at 11 o'clock or around that time, I call this doctor who I mentioned that I had given me his number, the personal physician to the, to the general's. And I call him. I said, what should I do? The neighbor's lights are on next door. Should I go back next door and have ask them, ask him to take me to the hospital again? Should I call 911? What should I do? I was confused. I was in pain. I was, uh, I, I couldn't think straight. So I'm thankful that I had him to talk to. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't think you have a problem. I don't think you need to call an ambulance, but it wouldn't hurt to go to the hospital. Get the name, na- go to the neighbors if they're there just have him take you to the hospital again. That would be great. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. So I walk over to the neighbor's house, knock on the door, and the wife answers the door. And it turns out that her husband is out of town, she says. He's working out of town that night. And so she's by herself with her 16-year-old daughter. And uh, so she looks, she sees that I'm in distress. She says, well, I can help you. I can take you to the hospital. I thought, great, this is good. I, I felt relieved, a bit of relief. I said to her, I just need to go back into the house um, and grab my wallet with my identification. I knew I needed ID to, to check into the hospital. So I go back to my house, and which is right next door, and I, I'm looking for my wallet. And because of my confusion, because of the chest pain, because of the, I can't focus, I'm having a hard time finding it, and I just can't find it right away. So it takes about 10, 15 minutes before I actually... Uh, I'm able to go back to her house. By that time, I step out the door and I'm in shock because all of a sudden, all her lights in her house are off. Why? Why would she turn all the lights off? So I go to her door, which I'd just been there 15, 20 minutes before, and she's not at the door. I knock on the door, all the lights are out, and there's no answer at the door. I'm thinking, what? what's going on here? She said she was going to take me to the hospital. Why isn't she here? And uh, all of a sudden, I hear sirens. And the police pull up into her driveway and 
they get out of the car and they scream at me as if I am a criminal trying to break into a house. And they grab me and they throw me up against the car and they, as if I, as if I had anything to, uh, that I was going to, you know, somehow defend myself or whatever, mm-hmm. as they would treat a criminal. And I was trying to explain to them, I'm sick. This, and I, she's, she's going to take me to the hospital. She said she was taking me to the hospital. This is all a mistake. They didn't want to hear any of that. They were accusing me uh, and, and trying to, uh, to say that I did something wrong, that I was trespassing to her house, that I was trying to break into her house or whatever. And I said, no, that's not, all, that's not right. Go talk to her you know, and, and, and get this sorted out. They kept giving me a hard time. Uh, and then they said, well, we, we have two choices. We can take, we can call um, an ambulance for you or we can call a taxi for you uh, to take you to the hospital. And, and I, again, couldn't focus. I didn't know what to say or what, which, which decision to make. I couldn't make a decision at this point, but I knew I, I could, uh, I, I had just talked with this, this colonel, this doctor, and I can't remember if he was still on the line if I still had him on the line or if I had to call him back. But I spoke with him. He was still, uh, I was still able to talk to him. And I asked him, what should I do, uh, doctor? Should I, should I take the taxi to the hospital or should I get the, the police to, to, um, uh, to um, uh, should I take the taxi or should I get the police to call an ambulance? And he said, well, I don't think you need an ambulance. I think, you know, take a taxi, get them to call a taxi and just take the taxi. So, okay, so I told that to the police. They, they were skeptical of who I was talking to. They didn't believe or they didn't, they, they didn't understand that I was actually talking to another military officer. But anyway, they called a taxi for me. Well, I go inside and it's taking a long time to take the taxi. And by that time, I, uh, I, was, I looked at the watch and I was able to take my next dose of medication. So I took my medication, which made me calm down and in fact made me s- sleepy. And I fell asleep. I fell asleep. I dozed off before the taxi before the taxi came. I guess the taxi must have come to the door. I didn't hear it. I don't know what happened. Mm. The next thing I remember is the police are back at my door and they're banging on the door to get in. They are not happy now. They are not happy with me. So I let them in. I said, well, what's going on? They say, you didn't take the taxi. We got a taxi for you. And I said, I took my medication and they didn't want to hear any of that. Now, at this point, they were accusing me uh, that I was, in fact, trying to break into the neighbor's house. And they were saying, not only that, you went back there, didn't you? You went, you went back there and you tried to break into that house. You knew, you knew that the husband was away, didn't you? You knew that this woman was alone by herself and you were just waiting for him to go away, weren't you? You're just waiting just to go and break into that house. And I said, no, that's, and I was so sick. I couldn't, I couldn't even comprehend this. I was feeling so condemned. I was feeling so down. And they were accusing me. They were, I thought they were going to hit me. Wow. Um, uh, they were threatening me that they were going to arrest me, that I was going to spend the night in jail, that they were going to publish my, my photo in the newspapers to say that I'm this, that, I, that I, uh, I'm a trespasser and, and, and attempting to break into the neighbor's house. And they made me sign a warrant. They made me sign a, a no trespassing warrant that if I ever, if I ever trespass on the neighbor's house again, uh, that I will be arrested and I will be put in prison. So I, I, I was forcibly to sign. They weren't going to leave until I signed this thing. I didn't even, I wasn't able to focus to read it. I, I signed it very sure. shakingly. And uh, they threatened me again saying, if you leave this house, you so much as just leave this house tonight and we, you are going to spend the rest of this night in, in jail. We're going to be watching you. And I thought, oh no. 
oh. So I, I, I spent the rest of that night in fear and trembling. I, I, I thought they were going to come back. I didn't know. I didn't know what uh, what they, what was going to happen next. So, so I, I didn't sleep. So this whole night starts out as you need medical help. Yes. And now the police are involved. Yes. And they have basically made it worse by saying you can't leave your house tonight. Right. Okay. Just wanted to get that straight. Yeah. And and so. When, when morning finally came, I was in no position to drive. I was in no position to do anything. I called my commanding officer, uh, and, and he, he said, I'll be right over. I'll pick you up on the way to work. And he saw the distress I was in, and he took me right to the, the hospital on the base. They took me from there directly. Uh, they put me in an ambulance. They saw the position I was in. They took me in that by ambulance to the hospital in town in the city, and uh, they prodded and, and poked me all day, did all kinds of tests. Again, it was still a heart pain. There was still a severe chest pain. Mm-hmm. And so they were still concerned that it was a heart attack. So they did a, a more, um, more serious tests. And again, none of that was found positive. There were no, my heart was not a problem. They gave me some more medication. Um, and some people from the from the place uh, from the um, from the from the base came to visit me. A friend of mine said that I could stay at his house, and so I thought that would be a great idea. I then called my wife to tell her what was going on. I said, "You don't have to come back. I'm staying the, the next few days at this friend of mine. You know him, and, and it was a mutual friend, and she was satisfied with that. So I ended up staying uh, there, and um, over the period of to make a long story short, over the period of the next months, I, I met with a lot of doctors, a lot of psychologists, psychiatrists dealing with this issue, and uh, and and the but the anxiety didn't go away. It it, uh, it made it was it was like being on a roller coaster and and uh, and wanting to get off, uh, panic attacks, you know, very very severe. You're fa- afraid to drive in traffic. Very afraid to drive in traffic. Afraid afraid of, of so many things. But I still, I didn't uh, I didn't want to give up on. Uh, on my family. Uh, we had just moved there uh, less than a year ago. And so I didn't want to uproot my family. So I wanted to, I wanted us to, to I wanted to be able to stick it out and, and, and still continue to, to work there if I could. Mm. Uh, even though I was, I was struggling during that time, I did get some, some time off to, to, to uh, you know, periods of, of leave to, to deal with my illness. Uh, but the, I didn't feel supported still by my, by the general or by the, uh, by my, my boss there. Um, uh, I didn't feel the compassion that I really was kind of looking for or thought that I would, would be able to get. It was, it was a very demanding operation. And so their, their, their thinking was, well, I should, I should be sent home. You know, they mm. should send this guy home. He's sick and, uh, you know, we, you know, whatever. But, um, I ended up staying, I ended up staying and I, uh, I struggled with this over that time. And then the next, uh, the next posting from there was here to Kingston and, uh, I met with you know counselors and psychologists here as well. All all good. Most people didn't understand what I was going through. That was a part of the difficulty. I saw so many doctors, mm. never the same one twice. Mm. That's the way the military works in the medical profession. And then uh, I did get get good support from a psychologist uh, the, on the base, uh, but um, that was the first time that that had happened. Uh, then about an, uh, less than a year after being in in uh, in the uh, here in Kingston, I was introduced to this to this the singing organization. So mm-hmm. I just turned the, the page towards that. And how that happened was, while I was at this last job in the military um, here in Kingston, I met a gentleman who was 
eager to talk. We were able to talk our personal issues, and that was helpful as well. But he always switched the topic to this barbershop singing. He said, Paul, you should come out and sing with us barbershop. And I kept saying, Len, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> that doesn't sound like fun, like barbershop. What is that? But he kept bringing the conversation back. I kept saying, "Let's, we're talking about something else. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> he wouldn't give up. And so finally I said, look, you're, you keep bugging me just to make you happy. I'll show up one night to this stupid barbershop thing you keep talking about. <laughs> and so I showed up, but it was, it was amazing. It was the best thing that could have happened to me. It was, it was such a, uh, a breath of fresh air. I got in there and everybody welcomed me for who I was and where I was at. I didn't have to be a great singer. I didn't have to be somebody special. They brought me in, they, they, uh, they had me sing alongside a couple of people that took me under their wings to help me. Uh, they, they suggested, well, I could sing the melody part, which is in barbershop is the lead. That would be the easiest to, to, to sing along with because I don't read music. Mm. And, uh, and so I, I did that. And really, I couldn't hit most of the notes the first night there. I was just singing along kind of to myself but with them, but feeling part of something that was so much bigger than I could ever be. And during that time, that first night as well, as they do with all, as we do with all new people coming to the barbershop, there's a special welcoming time where a special song is sung specifically for that guest. The guest is brought to the front of the room and all the, all the other people gather around one at a time, shake their hand and welcome this person while singing a beautiful welcoming song in harmony. And I was so touched by that that night that I not only just shook their hands, I, I gave everybody a hug. I hugged everybody that came around to welcome me. I felt so welcome. And I felt so, I was walking on, you know, walking in an air, uh, coming back home that night. And uh, every Monday night since then, you know, life didn't change automatically since then. Uh, you know, I still, you know, Tuesday to Sunday would still be some dark days in there dealing with anxiety and, and on, a, on a journey to healing. Mm. But the Monday was the, Monday night was, the, was that special light, this therapeutic time of singing with these other guys. The one thing we had in common is we all love to sing. And the sounds that were produced were amazing. Uh, if, you, if you hit a certain, uh, you, you get the notes correct in this four-part harmony, you can actually bring out these things called overtones. And so the sound is magnified. You hear your sounds, but then you hear an octave above and maybe two octaves above if the notes are sung properly. And oftentimes we would hear that and it would just make the hair on your, the back of your neck stand mm. up. And it's just powerful. It's, singing uh, is so much more powerful than, than, than other speech. It just has something special. I think it's a God-given gift to us uh, to connect with Him even. Uh, and um, there's something really special and therapeutic about singing, listening to it, but even more so just, just being part of, uh, of, of producing whatever sound you can. Mm. So this idea of you, you mentioned to me before when we spoke that you've always had a part of you that you just you 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 wouldn't give up. Right. So I see, I see it as two sides to the same coin. On the one hand, it's like you're in this situation in the states. It's turned into a nightmare. You don't want to alarm your wife and your kids, and yet you you know. So it's that idea that you know you just gotta you gotta handle it. You gotta deal with it, and and part of that philosophy through life is maybe taking on more and more stress because we're, we're told that we need to just figure it out and deal with it. And, and maybe that turns into the negative side of things. And yet the underside of it is this resilience that you've just, you made a decision at some point that 
I'm, I'm not going to give up on this. I'm going to keep doing the best that I can do every day. And, and that's enough. So how, how does resilience work in your life today? How, how important is it to you as you continue down this path? It's, it's, uh, that's great. Yeah. It, it's very important. Um, because it's been a journey and it's been so rewarding because by not giving up, I've, I've, I've continued on the path of healing and, uh, there are so many, so many things that have been positive. Yes. The singing is one thing, but then by opening doors, you know, I'm meeting so many great people now and, and having an opportunity to help other people through different organizations. But, um, by 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 not giving up, but by just having this hope that there is there is uh, there is a better there is a better tomorrow. Uh, there is truth in that because this the the uh, as long as it may take for whoever you know as long as it's been t- has taken for me, I can now see I have my life back again and uh, in so many ways and life is good like there's still so much to live for and it's worth making that decision it really comes down to a decision of whether to give up or not and my encouragement to everybody uh is to is to not give up uh that resilience uh of 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 strength by just believing that tomorrow uh is is going to be a better day and uh and it's going to come you know the better days are ahead and I think there's probably people listening right now that are thinking, oh, that's great, Paul. You know, you probably got something special about you that enabled you to get through this. When, I mean, the reality is that I, if I can assume, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but there was probably several points, extended periods of time along the journey where you didn't see a way out of this. You didn't feel like it was ever going to get better. Is that a fair statement? Um, I... I I felt a lot of a lot of uh, time where it was, you know, it seemed like very distant, but I still did believe that I was that there was hope. I it was like the you know the the it was like a mountain. It was like there was a a mountain between me and the other side that I had to get across. So I knew that there was something, you know, the my better life or whatever getting through this thing was on the other side of that mountain. But I didn't know how to get across that mountain. Hmm. So that's how I often see that. And I shared that with my with my therapist as well, uh, the most recent therapist that I'm still in therapy now, a psychologist. And um, and so there is that hope. It's late at the, end of the, in the at the end of the tunnel kind of thing. Um, and it's it's a it's a journey. But there is a possibility to get there. But it's hmm. not necessarily an easy path. But it's uh, yeah. I, I just believe there was a way. So I guess part of the take home from this is that, you know, for all of us, when, when we get to that mountain and we see this imposing situation that that is in front of us, it's important not to be, not to take the presence of that mountain as an indication that we're not supposed to move past it, that ultimately, just because there's a mountain, we still need to cultivate the belief that there's a way to get past this. I just have to stay committed to learning how to get past it. Yes, that's right. Excellent. Cool. Well, it's been, I'm fascinated by your story and I want to have you back because I know there's a lot more that we can talk about. Um, this barbershop stuff sounds just really amazing. And uh, I'm just so thrilled that that music is 
is a huge light in your life. Yes. And uh, the, the serendipitous way that that kind of came about, I'm sure you never, uh, probably never thought you'd ever be uh, singing Barbershop by the sounds of the way you described it but That's right. at the beginning. But uh, it sounds like a beautiful thing. So thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. On CFRC 101.9 FM every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m., you'll hear Finding a Voice. My name is Bruce, host of that poetry-focused spoken word program. On it, you'll hear local readings and events, occasionally telephoned interviews across Canada, and always a touch of music. Again, Finding a Voice, here every Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. Check it out. Hope to catch you there. It's now time for Music and the Mind, where we spotlight addiction, recovery, and the search for the natural high. CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. I have spoken at length and shared many articles discussing the terrible dangers of fentanyl. Now this from CBC News, a toxicology report from Prince's autopsy, which was obtained recently by the Associated Press, shows he had what multiple experts called an exceedingly high concentration of fentanyl in his body when he died. Prince was 57 when he was found alone and unresponsive in an elevator at his Paisley Park estate. The date was April 21st, 2016. Public data released six weeks after his death showed he died of an accidental overdose of fentanyl, a synthetic opioid that is 50 times more powerful than heroin. A confidential toxicology report obtained by the Associated Press provides some insight into just how much fentanyl was in Prince's system. Experts who are not connected to the investigation said the numbers leave no doubt that fentanyl killed him. Dr. Lewis Nelson, chairman of emergency medicine at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School, said that even for somebody who is a chronic pain patient on fentanyl patches, the amount in Prince's blood was exceedingly high. He called the concentrations a pretty clear smoking gun. The report says that the concentration in Prince's blood was 67.8 micrograms per liter, It goes on to explain that fatalities have been documented in people with blood levels ranging from 3 to 58 micrograms per liter. It also says the level of fentanyl in Prince's liver was 450 micrograms per kilogram and that liver concentrations greater than 69 micrograms per kilogram seem to represent overdose or fatal toxicity cases. There was also what experts called a potentially lethal amount of fentanyl in Prince's stomach. Dr. Charles McKay, president of the American College of Medical Toxicology, said generally speaking, the findings suggest that Prince took the drug orally, while fentanyl in the blood and liver suggest it had some time to circulate before he died. 
Experts say there is no lethal level at which fentanyl can kill. A person who takes prescription opioids for a long time builds up a tolerance, and a dose that could kill one person might help another. Search warrants released about a year after Prince's death showed authorities found numerous pills in various containers around his home. A lab report obtained by the AP shows many of the pills tested positive for fentanyl and other drugs. Information that has been released publicly indicates the source of those drugs hasn't been determined. Recently, the lead prosecutor in the county where Prince died said in a statement that he was reviewing law enforcement reports and would make a decision on whether to charge anyone in the near future. Here is Prince with You Got the Look. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca.
The dream we all dream of. Please. Boy versus girl in the world series of love. Every Thursday at 3 p.m. to hear the YGK Breakout on CFRC 101.9 FM or CFRC.ca. You'll hear from local artists, Queen's University artists, and a wide range of stories from bands in the area. Learn more about our local up-and-comers on the YGK Breakout on CFRC. Whatever you're going through, we're here for you. We are the Peer Support Center, a confidential and non-judgmental drop-in space where you can come to talk to a fellow peer about anything at all. We have been supporting students at Queen's for at least 10 years now, and it wouldn't be the service we are today without the dedication and care of our amazing volunteers. We also wanted to thank you, Queens. Thank you for all the students for trusting us over the years with your stories and experiences and allowing us to help support you during your time here at Queens. University can be a challenging yet rewarding time, and we want students to know that we are here for them through the good times, the bad, and the in-between. Come stop by the Peer Support Center in JDUC Room 34. We are open seven days a week from noon to 10 p.m. CFRC 101.9 FM. And if you want to tune into past episodes, just go to www.cfrc.ca, click on the Listen tab. You can then go into the archives and search Wednesday at 4 p.m. Very simple. Sometimes I play two-part interviews, so if you've tuned into the second segment and you want to check out what happened in the first segment, this is the way to do it. Thanks so much for tuning in. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.